0: Yeah, sorry, Sam so I'm Matthew, and yeah, I would love to meet you after service. I've not met you before. Uh, now, let me try and transport us back to 2,000 years ago. Imagine you're a Jew living in Israel, and that there's been a 400-year silence from God. There's not been a single prophet in that time. And you're wondering, when will the Messiah from the line of David that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 come? How long will we have to wait? When will our deliverance come? When will the prophecies be fulfilled? And so imagine hearing about this guy, John the Baptist. And he's been in the wilderness, which is where God often met and spoke with his people in the Old Testament. And this guy, he's eating locusts and honey, and he's dressed up like the prophet Elijah. And he's practicing this new form of baptism that no one in Israel has ever seen before. And he's also, he's preaching this message of repentance. And you're just fascinated about it. So you travel to Bethany, just the other side of the Jordan, to see what the fuss is all about. But when you get there, he's surrounded by these religious leaders. And they're peppering him with questions left, right and centre. And it looks like he's almost on trial. And these religious elites, they're desperate to find out, who is this guy? What is he doing? Could he be the long-awaited Messiah? Is this the man the one that the scriptures and prophecies are all about. Let's look at the passage together. We first of all see the Jewish leaders ask John if he was the Messiah, and we see his response in verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. He rules out that option. But the religious elites are still wondering, who is this guy? So they go on to ask him if he's Elijah. Which, to be fair to them, was a reasonable question to ask so in the book of Malachi which was the last time God had spoken to his people Malachi promises in chapter 4 that before the day of the Lord arrives that Yahweh will send to them the prophet Elijah and the way that John dressed gave further weight to the theory because he dressed exactly like Elijah and he was also preaching a message of repentance just like Elijah had. But John quite simply responds to the question of if he is Elijah, with this answer, I am not. They then ask if he's the prophet, and by that they meant, are you Moses? And again, John the Baptist makes it clear that he's not. At this point, the Jewish leaders are confused, they're exasperated, and they need an answer. So they say in verse 22, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replies with the words of Isaiah 40, verse 3, saying, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. And it's helpful for us to know a bit of the context of Isaiah 40. So from Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, God has judged his people, and he's promised that they will go into exile as a punishment for turning their backs on him and worshipping idols. But in chapters 40 through to 66, Isaiah announces good news. He announces God's promise of how he will restore his people and all the nations through a suffering servant king. And in Isaiah 40 verse 3, Isaiah is saying, make way for the king. Make a highway for the king. The promised king is coming, so get ready for him. And John is now saying, I am the one who is making way for the king. Making way. For the Messiah. The Jewish leaders, they now had some more information about what he'd come to do, but that still begged another question, which we see in verse 25. Why then do you baptise if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Again, this is a very fair question. In the Old Testament, the only people that were baptised were Gentiles who were in the process of converting to Judaism, but John was baptising Jews. And another thing about Old Testament baptism is that the people who were being baptised, they weren't baptised by someone else, but they baptised themselves. So what John was doing was radical because he was baptising people and those people that he was baptising were Jews. So understandably, the religious elites were looking for an adequate authority to sanction such an extraordinary practice. And if John, he's he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, then what could possibly justify this new form of baptism? We know from other gospel accounts of John the Baptist that with his baptism, he was insisting that people repented of their ways and prepared themselves for the coming of the Messiah. His baptising of Jews was to prepare them for the coming of the one who would baptise them, not with water, but with the Spirit. John doesn't stop there. He goes on to say in verse 27 that the one who is coming is one who they do not know. And more importantly, he is one who John is not even worthy to untie his sandals. And this statement from John about not being worthy to untie his sandals is even more amazing when you understand who is meant to untie sandals in first century Palestine. Let me quote the commentator R.C. Sproul, who is really helpful on this. The one thing that differentiated a disciple in a rabbinical school from an actual bond slave was that the disciple was never required to take care of the shoes or the sandals of his teacher. Therefore, John was saying, don't look at me, I'm lower than a disciple, I'm even lower than a slave, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, to take off his sandals, to clean his feet. Don't look to me, look to him. He's saying, compared to Christ, I'm an absolute nobody. I'm lower than a nobody. Don't look at me, look to him. Look to him. John the Baptist knew he wasn't worthy, so he just humbly points to Jesus. And as Christians, that's what so much of our walk with Jesus is about. We just need to keep pointing to him, We need to keep saying, don't look at me, look to him. Don't give me the credit, give him the credit. And you don't need me to tell you that that is really not that easy to do. Like, we we love getting glory. We love adulation. We love it when people look at us admiringly. I mean, of course, I want you guys to go away this morning saying, that sermon was so powerful. Like, what he said will remain with me for the rest of my life. My heart wants that. I love glory. We love glory. We're massive glory hunters. And our desire for our own glory, it reminds me of a scene towards the end of the highly acclaimed TV series, Breaking Bad. Um, <laughs> Walter White, an ordinary chemistry teacher, at the start of the show, is diagnosed with terminal cancer. So he then decides to abandon his ordinary life and to start making and selling illegal drugs so that he could generate and then leave behind a large fortune for his family. Throughout the show, he inadvertently puts his family in danger and puts immense pressure on them. But he keeps saying throughout, I'm doing this for the family. But his wife Skylar, after seeing this go on for a long time, isn't having it. And finally she cracks and says to him, you're not doing this for the family. If I have to hear you say one more time, you're doing this for the family, I'll lose it. And eventually Walt admits it. He says this, I did it for me, I liked it. See, he loved the power that he'd amassed as a drug lord. He loved that people feared and respected him. In that world, he did have some kind of power and glory. What Walter did from the outset was wrong, but he may have started out with a desire to help his family. But in the end, it became all about him, all about his own power and glory. We love glory. Yet often we think, well, at least I'm not that obsessed with my own glory. We'll often think, well, I'm not as proud as that person. And that means we'll often, without realising it, adopt the very same attitude that the religious elites have throughout the Gospels of thinking, at least we're better than that person. At least we're better than that lot. See, we all have this inner Pharisee in our hearts that constantly tries to suppress our desire to be humble. It constantly tells us, that there are others who are worse than us. And so we end up glory hunting without even realizing it. And the thing is, we're not designed for our own glory. There's a heavy weight that comes with glory, and it's not a weight that we are designed to carry ourselves. And continually working more and more for our own glory is brutal. It will burn us out because we'll never receive enough, yet we'll always want more and more and more. We're designed not to receive glory, but to give it to God, the one who is worthy of all the glory. We need to keep giving him the glory by continually pointing to him. Now, I try to avoid using football analogies, but I've got one, so I'm going to use it. Um, so, it's a bit like something you see in football. So usually in football, when a player scores, he'll run towards the crowd, arms aloft, and just take in the adulation. Absolutely loving it. Sometimes it's different. Now, you might not like football, but imagine with me this scenario. Imagine a player picks up the ball on the halfway line and slaloms through the entire opposition team. And then he plays this exquisite pass across the goal to his teammate, who's a yard from goal, open goal, and his teammate just taps it in. In that situation, the goal scorer doesn't run off and celebrate and drink in the praise of the crowds. No, what they do is they run straight to their teammate who's set them up, and they keep pointing at them, shouting, it was all him, it was all him. And they run over to him, and they're pointing at him the whole time, it was all him that goal was all him. And it's the same for us with Jesus. We've pointing to Jesus saying, it's all him, it was all him, it's all him. Let's pray that the Spirit gives us strength to keep humbly pointing others to Christ, that people see Christ through us. Let's take our holiness seriously so our light can shine brighter for Christ, illuminating more of him to those around us. Let's keep saying, don't look at me, look at him. And you see, there's a wonderful thing about pointing to Christ, is that it's so freeing. Yes, it's hard, but it is freeing. It's so freeing. I did a talk the other night at a Christian Union event on this question. Imposter syndrome, will I ever be good enough? Imposter syndrome can be really hard, and it's really prevalent and increasingly prevalent in our society. And what's worse is that the world and every Disney film tells us to look to ourselves for the answer to our imposter syndrome. And the consequence of that is that it piles the pressure on you. If you're always looking to yourself, it piles the pressure on. But we don't have to do that. We don't have to look to ourselves. We just need to point to Christ. We don't have to be amazing. We don't have to be good enough. Because Jesus is good enough. And it's such a relief. We just need to look to him, speak of him, and point to him. In doing that, it takes the focus of our hearts away from curving inwards and looking to ourselves, away from our own glory and turns our hearts towards him, towards glorifying him. So let's pray that as we grow to be more like Christ, that our lives are one big massive arrow sign to Jesus. Let's keep looking to him and humbly pointing to him. Let's always say it's all about Christ. John the Baptist has made it clear to the religious elites that he is not the Messiah. And just imagine what a moment it was for him that the very next day, after his interrogation from the religious elites, he sees Jesus walking towards him. The man he spent his whole ministry pointing toward has finally arrived. It must have been electric. John sees the Word became flesh, sharing the same soil beneath his feet, walking towards him. And he bursts into praise, saying in verse 29, Luke, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He finally meets the Messiah, and he continues to give him all the limelight and glory. Now, we're reading this passage from the other side of the cross, uh, but when John the Baptist said this, he probably meant something different to what we'd think of when we hear that phrase, take away the sin of the world. See, John would have been thinking of a more apocalyptic lamb, who comes away and takes away the sin of the world by judgment. John, like everyone else around him, expected that the Messiah would come and judge Israel's oppressors, that he would drive the Romans out of Israel. So later on in the Gospels, we see that John saw Jesus merely going about preaching, and he became confused and actually doubted for a moment whether Jesus was the Messiah. He was thinking, surely the Messiah wouldn't just go about preaching, Where's the judgment? He found it hard to get his head around the true meaning of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And it can be hard for us too. We like strength. We like things to be impressive and mighty. But Jesus subverts our expectations. The Lion of Judah doesn't come roaring. He comes bleating towards the cross as a lamb. He is the lion, but he's laid down his glory to become the lamb. He is the sacrificial lamb promised in Isaiah. He is the one who lays down his life so that he could take away our sins. Just as the blood of the lambs in the Passover spared the people of Israel from God's wrath, so too does the lamb of God spare us from God's wrath by dying for our sins on the cross. We can behold the lamb of God who takes the punishment for our sins. So what should our response be? As John was encouraging those he was baptising to do, we need to repent. When we give our lives to Jesus, he forgives all our past, present and future sins They are dealt with for good. Praise God. At the same time, if we want to keep continually accessing the fullness of the life that we have in Christ, we need to live a life of humble, continual repentance. Do you want to point to Jesus with your life? Keep humbly repenting. We need to throw ourselves at his feet and say sorry and receive his forgiveness. And we do that every week as we come to the communion table. We examine ourselves, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. We say sorry and we repent. And then we walk to that table confidently, knowing that we're covered by the Lamb's blood and we worship him, the one who we are united with. If you've never said sorry to God before, you can do it for the first time today. Jesus loves you more than you can ever imagine. He wants to take all your sins away. He wants to forgive you. He wants to take away all your sin and throw it into the bottom of the deepest ocean. That's what his heart wants. Just go to him and say you're sorry. We can't contribute anything We just come empty-handed and say, sorry, please help me. I want to live for you. And he can never resist helping those who humbly go to him. Run into his wide open arms and accept the forgiveness that he offers. That is what Jesus is all about. Let's behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John John said that statement, he actually spoke of more than he knew. Because as we see as we'll go on through the Gospel of John, that Jesus increases the incredulity of the crowds and even of John the Baptist by not driving out the Romans. So we know that John the Baptist meant that the Lamb would bring judgment and would cleanse Israel and make it holy. That's what he meant by that statement. But we know that Jesus is also the Lamb of God who takes away our sins through his atoning sacrifice. And I think that still shocks us. We'll affirm it theologically, but I struggle to get my head around the amazing grace of Jesus. The gospel, it always surprises us. It's always subverting our expectations. We find it hard to believe that deep down, that we can't contribute to our salvation, that even our good works don't contribute. Dane Ortland in his book, Surprised by Jesus, has this helpful quote. He says this, The gospel invites us to trade in all our bad and our good for being free. All our bad and our good for being free. We contribute nothing. So let's keep looking back to God's word to remind us that our salvation has nothing to do with us. And it's all to do with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John continues to speak of more than he knew in verse 30. In the ESV, in verse 30, it says, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. It's a beautiful play on words. So the one that comes after John ranks before him because he existed before him. John knows that he is unworthy to untie his sandals because Jesus is the one who existed from before the beginning of time. And the Lamb of God, he's not only the suffering servant that was prophesied in Isaiah, but he is a suffering servant who is God. And in verse 31, John restates the purpose of his ministry. He was baptizing with water so that Jesus could be revealed as the Messiah to Israel. And as we move on to the final few verses of the passage, we know that the Messiah was the Lamb of God who did not come to do anything less than take away the sin of the world but he came to do a whole lot more than just that. And that brings us on to verses 32 to 34, where we see that Christ is the chosen one who the Holy Spirit rests on. In this passage, unlike some of the other Gospels, we don't actually have an account of John baptising Jesus. But John testifies about what happened when Jesus came up out of the water. He says in verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. This is a groundbreaking statement for John to make. Throughout the Old Testament, some of Israel's prophets and leaders had at times been filled with the Spirit. But this filling of the Spirit was only ever temporary. No one had been indwelt by the Holy Spirit 24-7 in the Old Testament. If you were about for a Heart and House series in 1 and 2 Samuel, you might remember that King Saul experienced the Spirit's power temporarily, and so did King David. But Jesus, the only one who never displeases his father, is the first one who the Spirit would rest on permanently. The Messiah is the one who the Spirit gladly descends on and remains in. And the ramifications of this change the trajectory of history. Let's look at verse 33. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who became flesh just like us, received the Spirit, and unlike anyone else before him, the Spirit remained in him. Now Jesus, who has been raised from the dead and ascended on high, sends the Holy Spirit to descend on and remain in us. He will never leave us. The Holy Spirit, he is the seal of our salvation. He is the one who through we can cry out, Abba, Father. He is the one who unites us to Christ. That's what being sealed by the Spirit means. And there is another sense in which we're filled by the Spirit that is distinct from salvation, which we need to keep seeking more and more of. We're in one sense indwelt by the Holy Spirit 24-7 from the moment we become a Christian. But we can also pray for more of his power, more of his presence and more of his love to be poured out on us. We can pray to be filled afresh. So let's thank God that his spirit is always with us while also praying for more and more of his power in our everyday lives. Because of Jesus, we are given the Holy Spirit. He who is called the helper and the comforter. And this should comfort our weary souls in January. We read from Isaiah Isaiah 40 earlier. Here's what verse 1 says It says, The Lord says, Comfort, comfort my people. The very first words after 39 chapters of bleak judgment comfort, comfort my people. And God kept his promise. He comforted his people because he sent us the Messiah, who the Comforter descended and remained on, so that through his death and resurrection, the Comforter could descend and remain in us. We have the comforter in us now because of Jesus. And we need him. We are weak. We are feeble. I particularly feel that going into January. And that's absolutely okay. It's okay that we feel weak and feeble, that we feel inadequate, because we are. But he gives us the strength that we need. As a follower of Jesus, the question is never are you strong enough? The question is, are you weak enough? Are you weak enough to rely on the Holy Spirit to give you strength? Here are the words of 19th century preacher Andrew Murray. When we pray for the Spirit's help, we will simply fall down at the Lord's feet in our weakness. And there, we will find the victory and power that comes from his love. It's not about our ability or our strength, it's about him and his power and presence in us. His comfort is warmer than the warmest fire, more intimate than the most intimate hug. We can rejoice because the Comforter has descended on us and remains in us, and he will carry us home until we are safe in the arms of Jesus. In this passage, we hear of Jesus being baptised, and his baptism is unique, but Jesus does command his followers to be baptised. And next Sunday, we're going to have a few people baptised here, as they take that joyful step of obedience. And if you're a follower of Jesus, and you've not been baptised yet, then why not join them? Why not follow in the steps of your Saviour and be baptised? As we come into land, we see that John the Baptist had the privilege of seeing the Messiah and baptizing him. And in verse 34, he concludes, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. He verifies that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's part of the reason as to why this passage is here in the Bible. Remember, John the Evangelist, the author of the book of John, makes his purpose in writing the book clear in chapter 20 verse 31 which says this but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name John the Baptist's testimony further assures us and helps us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God and this passage also shows us that we can have life in his name We have life in his name by saying it's all about Christ, by humbly pointing to him, proclaiming to others that he is the Messiah, that it's all about him, that he is the one who deserves all the glory. We have life in his name as we point to him. We also have life in him because we've seen what Christ is all about. He is the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins. He is the one who died in our place. And because of him, we can keep running to him, confessing our sins and receiving forgiveness. And he loves to lavish his love and mercy upon us. He is never reluctant or slow to forgive us. And we're not only forgiven, Jesus literally gives us new life in his name by giving us the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He dwells in us. He is a seal of our salvation. He is God's presence and comfort in us. And let's pray for more of him. Let's pray that he'll fill us afresh, so that we have renewed life in his name. We have life in him by humbly pointing to him and enjoying him. So look to him. Worship Jesus. Gaze at his beauty. Point others to his beauty. And enjoy his beauty. Enjoy him. Because at the end of the day, at the end of that final day, it's all about Christ. Let's pray.